Welcome to a very special novelization realization project. I am your host, Rich Straffolino, and I had the distinct privilege this week to sit down with famous novelizer Alan Dean Foster for just about an hour, and we had a lot of fun talking about movie novelizations, literature in general, and just a lot of, had a lot of fun talking to him. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with Alan Dean Foster. Here we go. much for uh, accepting the interview. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. The last Skype I did was with some people in Kuala Lumpur and the connection wasn't quite as good. <laughs> well, luckily in Cleveland, it's a uh, slightly, slightly better internet quality. Clear in Cleveland. Okay. Well, it's nice to talk to you. Cool. Cool. Um, so uh, I'm doing a podcast that's all about movie novelizations, uh, kind of going over them, comparing them to movies. And it's kind of impossible to look into movie novelizations without coming across your name uh, at a certain point. Uh, yeah, in fact, at exactly. the very beginning. Yeah. And uh, so I was really excited to get a chance to talk to you. Um, what was the uh, first uh, movie novelization uh, that you uh, that you wrote? The first one was a film called Luana, which was a very cheap Italian female Tarzan film. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the, the main character was played by this diminutive Vietnamese girl who was probably about four foot ten. And she was only in the film for about five minutes anyway, so it didn't really matter. <laughs> and the film embodied all the worst aspects of Italian filmmaking. So lot, uh, lots, of, uh, lots of sweat, lots of uh, uh, bad, very filmy uh, cinematography. Uh, badly dyed hair. People yes, walk, yes. People walking through the jungle for a long time. <laughs> and... I said, sure, I'll do this. Of course, this was very early in my writing career altogether. I said, where's the screenplay? I need a copy of the screenplay to work from. They said, we don't have a copy of the screenplay, but we'll arrange a screening of the film for you in Los Angeles, which I was still living in at the time. So I went to the producer's office, a little tiny walk, third floor walk up uh, in Hollywood, right off Hollywood Boulevard, and uh, had a little room, and they ran a copy of the film for me which was all in Italian with no subtitles. <laughs> uh, so I was, I was left in kind of a conundrum there. It's like, I don't know what anybody's saying. They don't appear to be saying much, but I still don't know what anybody's saying. What am I going to do with this thing? And the young man they had hired to do publicity for the film was a fan, evidently, because he'd hired Frank Frazetta to do two oil paintings as PR for the film. Wow. Both, both of these paintings, yeah. Both of these paintings have been reproduced many times in various Frazetta collections, although they don't say Luana. They usually say things like Jungle Girl. <laughs> uh, so what I ended up doing was novelizing the cover painting. Which oh, wow. Did, <laughs> That's... It didn't look like a little diminutive Vietnamese girl, needless to say. Mm -hmm. This is Frank Frazetta we're talking about after all. And basically wrote my own female Tarzan novel. Wow. That was in 1973. So, so that was the first. So would you say that uh, is a atypical example of how the novelization process usually goes? I would say fortunately. Yes. <laughs> well, that's kind of uh, one of the things that fascinated me is sometimes reading the novelization, you get to kind of see the sausage being made, as it were. Uh, you get to see maybe a uh, not finished script. Uh, probably the most infamous, infamous is the Back to the Future novelization, which is based off a way earlier script, and it's a completely different story. Uh, at, at, like, what is the usual process involved with that? Uh, are you getting 
a finished script? Are you are you seeing a screening? What uh, uh what would be considered you consider typical? Well, it varies from studio to studio and project to project, as you might expect. But first, let me give you a little adjunct to what you just said about the you know the worst example. Mm-hmm. When I'm doing the book version of Alien, Fox was so paranoid about giving away the look of the Alien that they wouldn't let anybody see in it, see any of it, or or any of the pre-production drawings. Nobody knew who H.R. Giger was, so that didn't matter. So I had to write the whole book without having any idea of what the alien looked like. That was awkward. I to say the least. I mean, the the that's such a visual movie. I can't imagine undertaking that project without having some idea. Well, weren't easy. <laughs> to answer your question, maybe it helped the book. I don't know. But to answer your question, uh, it it does vary from project to project. The the usual procedure is. At least in my case, you get a copy of the screenplay, mm-hmm. then you get down on your knees and turn towards Hollywood as opposed to towards Mecca and beg for anything relevant to the film. Pre-production drawings, stills, uh, at least photos of the actors so that you have some idea of what they look like when you're describing them in the book. Uh, anything you can beg, borrow or steal uh, from the studio that will help you flesh out the book and also make it look like make it, excuse me, make it read like uh, what you actually see on screen. In rare instances, you might get to do things like go on a set, which is not nearly as useful as most people might think, since the process of making large-scale films is very slow and actually, after the first time, quite boring. It's kind of like sitting out overnight for the Hollywood, uh, uh, for the Rose Parade. You do it one time and you don't have to do it for the rest of your life because it's it's cold and it's crowded. It's the same thing. Uh, but the thing that really is useful is if you can see anything of the film, even in little tiny film clips. And what's happened is that, at least in the case of the last two Star Trek movies uh, that I did the, the book versions of, is that thanks to the development of a high-speed Internet, they are able to actually send me stuff which is so deeply encoded that the NSA could never crack it. <laughs> this is Hollywood we're talking about, after all. And I actually can see not only pieces of the film, but in the case of the last film, the entire film on my home computer. Oh, wow. Which is astounding if you're doing the book version of a film. Because what I'll do is I'll put the film on one side of the screen, have my manuscript that I'm working on on the other side, and I can actually stop and start the film and work through individual scenes of the film as I'm writing them into the book. And hopefully this would, I would want this to be standard operating procedure for all future novelizations. But the studios are so paranoid and probably justifiably so. Uh, It it was an unusual circumstance. I don't expect that to be the case all the time, but that would be the best case scenario. You'd actually be able to watch, stop, reverse the film while you're doing the book. It would certainly make for a more accurate book. Well, and and certainly, in as you were saying, uh, to beg, borrow, or steal any kind of material, uh, certainly in the age of the internet, it's slightly easier to maybe get uh, at least to to see pictures of cast lists and to uh, maybe get some production still stuff like that. I mean, uh, I, I imagine it's it, it's a, a quite a different scene than it was in the late '70s, early '80s. Uh, you know, when you're writing Alien, Aliens, and those kind of uh, those kind of books. Um, what is the usual turnaround time uh, in terms of when you're contracted to do a novelization and, uh, and when you have the finished product? 
Uh, the publisher in the studio would like you to turn in the manuscript two days before the contract is signed. <laughs> the, the problem is that uh, these days things happen so quickly in motion pictures where you can literally uh, do a final edit of the film the week before it opens because everything is shipped, can be shipped digitally and shown digitally. Uh, publishers don't work that way. You can do that with an ebook, but you can't do that with a book on paper. Publishers need lead time. They need time to print it. They need time to proof it. They need time to ship it. They need time to do advertising and PR. And the normal time for a book, for a novel, would be like, say, 11 months. You don't get 11 months turnaround time if you're a publisher to do a novelization. Sometime you might, only, you might only have, you'd have less than a couple of months, let's say. Essentially, it's an instant book wow. in certain cases. And... Uh, it, it's very, very difficult. So they want the book to answer your question as quickly as possible. Uh, this is a facility that I've had that, you know, I may not be, I'm not Leo Tolstoy or Herman <laughs> Melville, but I don't write with a quill pen either. Uh, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, what is your process? I was just wondering. I mean, there are, there, I'm always fascinated to know, like, kind of productivity, uh, inspiration, as it were. I mean, you have guys that some guys insist on going on a typewriter. George R.R. R. Martin is infamous for using WordStar 6 on a DOS machine to, to write the Song of Ice and Fire. Um, any particular uh, uh, setup that you swear by or, or just kind of uh, on a laptop or, or what, is your, what is your setup there? Well, I've got a Mac. Mm -hmm. It's funny. It's, it's kind of, I've kind of come full circle in all my writing, including the novelizations. When I started writing novels, I dictated everything. Oh, wow. Because the typewriter of choice at that point, for me anyway, was a Smith Corona electric portable, which only goes so quickly no matter how fast you can type. <laughs> and then from that, I graduated to an IBM Selectric. The gold standard. A, right. But it's still a typewriter. And what I would do is I would dictate everything into a handheld tape recorder. I would give the tapes to a typist. She would transcribe that. And then I would have that as my rough draft, even though the spelling obviously wouldn't be accurate and everything else, but it was fine. I could follow it with no trouble. And I would use that as my rough draft and put that off to one side and then write on the typewriter on the other side. When computers came along and I was finally persuaded to get one, I had a Zenith black and white laptop, which was hot stuff in those days. Wow. Yeah, white on black. Uh, I found that because I was a good typist, that I could type almost as fast as I could dictate. So I simply, plus it was like getting an extra draft by doing it on the computer. So I got in the habit of working on the computer and away from dictating. When I say it's come full circle, now you have wonderful dictation software, like Dragon Speaking, for example which is very accurate, and I could actually go back to dictating directly into the computer. But I'm so used to, after the last 40-odd years of typing on the computer, that I just eliminate the dictation. But if something happened and I you know, found that I could no longer type from arthritis or something, I would still be able to write because I don't think I would have any trouble going back to dictating. Is, so is, was, oh, uh, I'm sorry. No, no, that's, my, that's the technical aspects of, of my writing style. Uh, in... Going into that, the idea of uh, kind of dictating a rough draft is, in terms of your style of composition, I guess, it, 
that sounds like it would translate very well over to something like an audio book or I mean, not that there is that much of a distinction between the two. Obviously, an audio book is just a read version of a written book. But is that kind of how your thought process is when just writing in general in terms of just being able to I, I don't know that for at least uh, obviously I'm I, I don't write professionally. But for me, uh, the 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 temptation is always to self edit and to go back and to, you know, try and perfect the sentence. Uh, are you just kind of a, you know, plow forward and then I'll, I'll work once I have something to work with, then I'll uh, go back and edit that? Well, I always find that I always tell students that it's more important to get from page four to page five than to spend three weeks perfecting page four. <laughs> because what happens is you get stuck. You lose you lose the energy. At least I find you lose the energy. You lose the forward motion of the story if you stop and try to perfect everything uh, as you go. Uh, it's much better just to go through and get a rough draft. Then you go back and you can play around with you play around with your manuscript. As uh, as a as a failed national novel writing uh, uh, participant, uh, many times over, I can I definitely appreciate that advice. Uh, it's uh, it's always the temptation to bog down on the details, I guess. Well, you, you know, if you do something, particularly if you write something that you're not completely happy with and you're aware of the faults of it, the temptation is certainly there to go back and revise it while you're on it. And you can do that, you know, say once. But if you stick around, you're doing it two or three times, uh, it becomes the tortoise in the hare. And you just, you're, you're just stopping in one place. And it's no good to stop in one place. You can go to the end of the drive and then you can go back and look at the, the holiday pictures. Don't look at them, you know. I never, wow, that's an awesome metaphor for that. I never really thought about it like that. Um, In terms of um, going back to more novelizations, uh, would you say Luana would be your most negative experience or challenging, perhaps, experience uh, doing that? Uh, That and Dark Star. Okay, I'm not even familiar with that movie. Okay, that you know, it was a little student film project by a couple of kids named John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I'm, too bad they never did anything else. Jeez. <laughs> uh, and uh, a very interesting little film to look at the credits, you know, for you, for a graduate film project. Ron Cobb did the sets, went on to do Conan and other things. Oh, wow. Greg Jean built, built the little spaceship, went on to build the mothership in Close Encounters. So it reads like the credits now, not then, but now read like the credits for a major Hollywood film. But that's basically about three guys in space talking around, sitting on a spaceship talking about how bored they are. And to get a full-length novel out of that was tough. So that was challenging. And, of course, Luana was challenging. The most negative experience was Alien 3. Really? Yes, because what normally happens is uh, studios don't get involved too much because it's an ancillary project. It's like uh, putting your characters on McDonald's drink cups or, or bed sheets, and everybody is busy with the movie, and then when it's done, they're busy with the next movie. But nowadays, for some reason, uh, studios seem to get a little more involved in the novelization. Uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But they did in the case of Alien 3. I wasn't crazy about the script for Alien 3. Nobody was crazy about the script for Alien 3, or there would have been wouldn't have been so many different versions of the script for Alien 3. But be that as it may, I do what I can with what I have without drastically trying to change the plot or the general thrust of the story, because that's not my job. 
so when I do something like that, or like Disney's The Black Hole. Oh, classic. I, I, I try to change. I try to fix the science errors. I try to ascribe motivation to the characters who don't have any motivation. For example, most of the characters in Alien 3 are just alien chow. They're there to be eaten by the alien or just, you know. Uh, so I go through and I try to fix all those things. And I'm very proud of that without, again, doing anything that you know, interferes with the general plot. And I did that with Alien 3 and I turned it in and I got back a letter from uh, Walter Hill, one of the producers, saying that you can't essentially saying you can't do this. We think that you, you need to follow the script exactly. We think it'll make a much better book. So rather than writing back and saying, I've done this once or twice before, and uh, George Lucas and Dan O'Bannon and Ron Shusett and assorted folks, Ray Harryhausen, were reasonably content with what I did, rather than doing that, uh, it's a work for hire. You really have no choice. So I had to throw out a lot of the stuff that I had written for the book. A lot of the people, if you remember the film, people on that prison planet, I gave them backgrounds, why they were on the prison planet. I tried to make them more fully rounded characters, which you don't have time to do in a movie, but which is one of the great pleasures of doing a novelization. But I had to throw all that out. And it was such a disagreeable experience that when I was offered uh, the chance to do the novelization of Alien Resurrection, I said no, which is why I didn't. And A.C. Crispin, who unfortunately is no longer with us, subsequently sent me, after doing the novelization of Alien Resurrection, uh, a short, very sorry, uh, sorrowful letter saying, you know, why didn't you warn me? <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Jeez. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So th that was another thing I wondered is in terms of the latitude. It was I, I find it very interesting to say that uh, you consider, don't consider that your job to necessarily uh, correct what you what some might perceive as uh, story errors, but instead to kind of give a more fleshed out uh, detail of it. We just covered uh, Clash of the Titans, uh, the novelization, and watched the movie. And that was one of the things I really enjoyed about it, is kind of just giving a little bit more uh, detail to the characters, giving background. And in kind of hindsight, you don't think about this necessarily when you're watching the movie, because again, yeah, it's a two-hour experience. It's a, it's a different medium, and you have different expectations. But seeing the lack of that uh, that background, that fill-in, you definitely sense the void there of, okay, well, this guy's not really necessarily villainous, he's just kind of a brat. And I don't know, you know, uh, and I'm referencing the character of Calabas. In the movie, he just comes across as, as kind of a bratty, uh, spoiled person who ends up being kind of a bastard, but in the book, it definitely uh, goes a little bit more into why he's truly villainous and, and a, little bit, a little bit more into the magic aspects of that as, as, as well. So I, I just find that very interesting. Just for clarification, you're talking about the one I did? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, that was fun. I enjoyed that. Not only did it give me a chance to do something, you know, at least distantly related to Ray Harryhausen, but uh, instead of correcting scientific mistakes, I got a chance to sp spruce up some of the Greek mythology. <laughs> yes. Ray was you know, pretty much a visual guy. And when he found something that he liked visually, he just latched onto that uh, without a whole lot of regard sometimes to the uh, the actual Greek mythology background. But that was fine. I, I enjoyed cleaning that up and, and making, you know, throwing little references in here and there. And it was a lot of fun. Just as an aside to that, uh, I once asked Charlie Schneer, who was Ray's longtime producer. Mm -hmm. He's also going to say, you know, it would be great if Ray would do a Lovecraft story. 
Oh my God. Oh, that'd be amazing. You know, I mean, Ray was good with tentacles. He, he would have done a killer Cthulhu. Oh, I just watched the, uh, the documentary it's on uh, Netflix about him and, and just watching some of that stop motion stuff. Uh, and it, I mean, it made me want to go back and watch Jason and the Argonauts and just all of those, uh, just classic stop motion stuff. It just looks fantastic still. I mean, it has so much character. Yes, that's exactly right. It has a lot of character for, uh, stop motion can give you character in a way that CGI sometimes cannot. And, uh, one second. And, uh, so I asked Charlie that, and he said, all Ray wants to do is Greek mythology. Wow. And that was when Class of the Titans was being done. That was Ray's thing. He wanted to do Greek mythology, Greek and Roman mythology, I guess you would say. Yeah, I had, I had read that there was going to be a sequel that would uh, feature the, I don't know if they had talked about doing having Ray Harryhausen do the effects for it, but for uh, to do the story of Aeneas uh, and the fall of Troy and, and the follow-up with that. Uh, so, I, I mean... I don't necessarily know if there's a ton of uh, mythological creatures to be animated for that, but uh, more Ray Harryhausen would have been better. Uh, I think we can all agree on that. Uh, geez, I, I didn't realize. Oh, man. Now I'm, now I'm like obsessed with the idea of a Ray Harryhausen Cthulhu that just uh, blow my mind. Uh, it, it would have been great. Um, and Charlie, uh, Charlie Schneer, he thought it would have been great, too. But he said he had tried for years to get Ray to do other things besides Greek mythology, and Ray just wasn't interested. Now, neither one of them is here, so you can't call them up and ask them. True. But that, that is my recollection from decades ago. Uh, are there, uh, kind of going back into uh, uh, more classic uh, cinema, is there any uh, any project that you think, like, I could do so much if I was, you know, like, uh, Day the Earth Stood Still or something, you know, just some classic... Uh, sci-fi or fantasy is there is there any project that you would be like i would have been perfect for this uh, you don't have novelization yes so. yes i always wanted to do my second favorite film of all time is the thief of baghdad i can't this say film. that i'm familiar with that the 1939 1940 thief of baghdad well you must rent it or get it from netflix won two academy awards probably the best written fantasy film uh, High price indeed. Uh, you'll notice many, uh, excuse the expression, borrowings for Disney's Aladdin. Most notably, the uh, evil Grand Vizier Jafar. They didn't even bother to change the name. <laughs> Played by the great German actor uh, Conrad Veidt. Oh yes. Oh. Oh wow. Yes, from Con oh the best evil Grand Vizier ever had the best genie, uh, at least in a non-animated film. Uh, of any Arabian Nights film, a great black actor named Rex Ingram, who was so good that Hollywood didn't know what to do with him. So when they did a war film with, uh, for example, Humphrey Bogart as the commander of a tank stuck in the desert defending a water hole from a bunch of thirsty Germans, they made Rex Ingram a sergeant in the Sudanese army because he obviously couldn't be in the American army. Uh, but it is a tremendous film. It is, it is beautifully written. It, the dialogue sounds like it came right out of the Arabian Nights. It stars Sabu, uh, better known as you know the Bomb of the Jungle Boy, I suppose, from the Jungle Gym TV series and many things. Okay, okay. But uh, just an absolutely brilliant film. And if you haven't seen it, uh, it's time for you to see it in, in Technicolor, in raging Technicolor. <laughs> uh, and the effects in it, some of them are a little dated. Well, they're all dated, but some of them are still extremely effective today. So there's a film for you to see. I would love to do a book version of that. 
And I discussed it with a couple of publishers. And the problem is that it's not modern fantasy. It's the sort of thing you'd find, you know, in a general library, uh, free from the Gutenberg project online. So I suggested transposing it to modern day Baghdad. Oh, oh, jeez, that'd be awesome. Contemporary. But whether you do it as a fantasy or a non-fantasy or a partial fantasy, but I think that would be an interesting project. But that wouldn't be a novelization, obviously. That would be an original novel. And you said that was your second favorite. Can I ask what your first, uh, what you consider your first favorite uh, film? Oh, classic. Uh, uh, Cary Grant. Uh, I did that for, I watched that for uh, Images of Judaism and Popular Film I took in college, (laughs) which was really, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, second highest grossing film of 1939 after Gone with the Wind. Oh, uh, well, I mean, Gone with the Wind does kind of tend to eclipse uh, most other records for most of Hollywood, I suppose. But uh, I didn't realize it was that uh, big of a success. But, um, oh, uh, the guy from The Jazz Singers in that and uh, just uh, right. Sam, Jeff. Wait, no, I have the wrong. You think of Al Jolson? Al Jolson, right? No, Sam Jaffe. Sam Jaffe is in it. I'm sorry, yes. he, but he's not the guy who was in the jazz singer. Never mind. The most Jewish Indian water carrier. Who <laughs> Hence why it was in the class. But a lot of people think he should have won Best Supporting Actor that year. I think he was nominated, actually. I mean, people will check me on this. But I believe he was nominated in the Best Supporting Actor category. But I could talk about Gunga Din for an hour and a half, and we wouldn't, wouldn't get anything done on novelizations. <laughs> now, that, interestingly, would make a really good book. Oh, yeah. I just uh, I mean, you could do so much with the characters. There's action. I mean, it, it has it all. But nobody would buy it. No. I mean, fans of the movie would buy it, which means fans of old black and white films would buy it, which means no publisher would be interested. The unfortunate economics of the publishing industry. Um, how did um, I guess kind of shifting gears? Uh, how did you get into novelizations in terms of, was it just a, a, a contract job? Did uh, you have a, a reference? Did you know somebody uh, that was getting involved with it? Um, I know uh, novelizations kind of, there were the tie-in uh, novel uh, kind of got started, I guess, maybe late 60s, early 70s. And obviously Star Wars had a huge impact on, on that kind of merchandising kind of uh, idea. Uh, but how did you kind of get in, uh, in, a foot in the door, as it were? Well, novelizations, uh, this is a cat in my lap, by the way. <laughs> I saw him prowling around. Yes. Uh, go back quite a ways. You could go all the way back, for example, to Edgar Wallace's novelization of King Kong in the 30s. But it didn't really become a business until the 60s, at the, at the earliest, certainly. And I think publishers were as surprised as anyone else that uh, people would buy book versions of not only movies, but television shows. And it became a thing before the internet, before DVD extended editions. It was the only way for people who were fans of a film or show to get more of that film or show. Uh, as to how I got into it, as I mentioned earlier, we discussed Luana, my first novelization. Uh, someone at, at Ballantine Books had bought the rights to Luana, probably without knowing anything about the film. And there was a change of editorship there in the science fiction department. Betty Ballantine retired from it, and a very remarkable woman named Judy Lynn Del Rey took over, which is why that line is now called Del Rey Books, both for her and her husband, Lester Del Rey. Uh, Judy Lynn edited the science fiction, Lester edited the fantasy, although there was certainly some cross-discussion there between husband and wife. And so Judy Lynn didn't buy the rights to Luana 
someone else had bought the rights. And she was stuck with this project, essentially. And looking for someone to turn it into a book, since they had bought the book rights. And I had done several original novels by that point for Ballantine slash Delray. Judy Lynn knew that I had an MFA in film from UCLA, and that if nothing else, I knew my way around a screenplay. This was before we found out there was no screenplay available to work from. <laughs> and asked if I would give it a shot. And I said yes, and that's how the whole thing got started. Oh, okay. Uh, is it... Uh, I mean, obviously you wouldn't do it if, uh, if you didn't get something out of it. Is, is it a process you enjoy? Uh, or um, are, are you... Obviously, I, your own work would take a preference uh, to that. But is, is it a process you enjoy, I guess, is, would be my question. I enjoy it in proportion to how good the movie is. Ah. Because if it's a good movie, I get to make my own director's cut. I have an unlimited budget and no time. But I get to essentially make the final cut version of the film that I would like to see. If it's a good film, something like Alien or Aliens or, uh, you know, Star Trek or Star Wars, then I have a lot of fun doing it. If it's not a good film, then it becomes a job, something like Alien 3 or The Black Hole. And it's very frustrating because as a science fiction fan, I want to go into the theater and see the best science fiction or fantasy film possible. And it irks me when there are many simple things that can be fixed and the only thing that's in the film and the only thing that stands in the way of them being fixed is somebody's ego. Uh, that and it, it drives it drives fans insane. You know, if you've got 100,000 viewers, dedicated fans of science fiction and fantasy films, and they all go see a film and every one of them spots the same mistake. Whether it's in effects or plot or background or costuming or whatever. You would think that the people making the film would also spot the same mistake and fix it. And sometimes they don't spot it and sometimes they spot it and they're lazy and they don't bother to fix it. It, it is amazing in this age of, uh, you know, I mean, giant uh, quarter billion dollar movies that it's still such an it seems like it's such an ego driven uh, industry to such a large extent. I mean, it, it, that's kind of uh, I have a pastime in and of itself is reading the drama that goes on uh, with, you know, various screen rewrites and which producer like this, you know, you go on IMDb or Wikipedia, of course, who knows how much of that is true. But uh, it, just seeing, you know, the, the battle of wills that goes on uh, and then the mediocrity sometimes that re as, is as uh, re results from it. it. It's it's quite remarkable. You'd think that either it would be down to such a science or that they would have confidence in, you know, people that have uh, clearly delivered, you know, numerous times uh, to allow them to express their vision. But I guess when you have a lot of money running on the line, you know. Well, it's different than it was, say, in the early 30s, when if you worked for one of the early studios or the early uh, iterations of the studios, uh, the same director and the same performers might do 10, 12 pictures a year. Literally. So nobody, you know, you do a picture a month. So nobody would notice so much. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't so much of, a, of an ego problem at that time. But as films became more important culturally, and as you say, a lot more expensive, suddenly you're not doing a film a month. You're doing a film every one film takes two, three years. And then you go to Glendale where they're sneaking your film. 
It costs $100, $125 million. And you sit in the back of the theater and you watch the audience and the flop sweat is pouring off of you. And you go out and you stand in the lobby and here comes uh, Ed Jones who runs the gas station down the street with his wife and three kids and says, well, that was a piece of crap. What do we see next week? And that's three years of your life. Jeez. Understandable. It's understandable that people get a little exercised about, you know, fixing something. Because if you fix it, you probably won't get credit for it. And if you don't fix it and people point it out, you're guaranteed to get called on the carpet for it. It drives people insane. It's not a normal business. It's not a normal piece of manufacturing. Uh, it's, it's rough. It's really rough. It's great when it works. It's great when you are so powerful that you're completely above it, like uh, George Lucas or Steven Spielberg. But if you're not in that rarefied plane, you are subject to the whims of whatever you did last week. And yeah, it's the what have you done for me lately, uh, you know. That's right. And writing is similar, but not anywhere near as bad as that. You can always go write another book or another story. Nobody can say anything about it or paint another painting or write another song. But with film, it's two or three years down the drain if you've screwed up. And if there's hundreds of millions of dollars on the line, uh, then it becomes difficult. The other thing is, I always say people in Hollywood or in the film business, I don't want to single out Hollywood, they know they can't set the lights and they know they can't record the sound and they know they can't do the special effects or so the costumes or act or direct but everybody thinks they can write. And everybody wants to get their two cents in there in the hope that they will get credit for it if it works and maybe even actually get credit for it on the final release of the film. It makes it very difficult, very difficult. Actors are paranoid. Writers in Hollywood are just scared. Jeez. I, I, I kind of wonder with the HBOification of a lot of TV, if we're going to be seeing more of a transition uh, like that in the TV industry as we get, uh, you know, larger and larger projects uh, and, and more ambitious efforts, if uh, if we won't see a little bit of that sneaking in there. It, right now, it seems it still seems very creator driven. You know, you have these uh, showrunners that are the kind of visionaries of the show. But uh, it, it'll be interesting to see in the next couple of years if if that kind, that kind of attitude kind of. Uh, bleeds into the into big TV and industry, as it were. Well, it's certainly changed for the better. Oh, oh, without a doubt. When you get a show like Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad is is a writer's show. And if if you had had a certain director or a certain group of people at a studio running that, you wouldn't have had Breaking Bad. Uh, sometimes that works. Sometimes you try an experiment like Deadwood which I enjoyed very much. Oh, yeah, phenomenal. I mean, I have to wash my mouth out with soap after every episode, but it's tremendous. Well, that was the experiment. Everything about that show was so good, except that the language stopped you cold. You would just be getting into a scene, and then somebody would, would pour out this endless stream of obscenities, usually a good actor, but it didn't matter. <laughs> and it didn't bother me as a viewer, but what it did was it stopped me. And the one thing you don't want to do with a book or a film or a TV show or a piece of music is cause people to stop cold and contemplate something other than the story that you're telling. And that was what was wrong with Deadwood. It wasn't that there was so much obscenity for obscenity's sake. It was just that it would stop the viewer. 
I'm not talking about the viewers who simply switch channels and stop watching, but people who even like the show, like myself, would just say, well, what was that and why was that there? Um, you, you overuse. It's like, uh, I, I love curry, but you put, keep dumping curry powder on there and pretty soon all you taste is curry powder and you forget whether it's seafood or chicken or whatever. Yeah, to use it as an accent rather than the, the main subject matter. There you go. The, the more you use it, 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 the more it loses its power. That's as true for obscenity as it is for curry powder. <laughs> but I do think that the advent, of, as you say, the HBOification, now we have original shows from Netflix and wonderful things from not just AMC, but uh, you know, channels like FX. And if you don't like them, you have other options. And from a writer's standpoint, the ability to tell a story over, say, 10 or 12 episodes, never mind multiple seasons, one continuous story is wonderful. It's just marvelous. I, you know, Maybe one day I'll have the opportunity to do that. But I can see it in my head, even if I don't get a chance to do it. And I'm sure a lot of fans do. That's why, for example, uh, when uh, the Sci-Fi Channel chose to do Dune, they were able to do a lot more of Dune than David Lynch was simply because they had the luxury of time. That's what the HBOification of television does. It gives you time. You know, I, I keep dreaming of a day that uh, they're going to uh, redo Babylon 5 with like a giant, with like a reasonable budget, uh, just because that, that was like kind of the first show for me that was this big arc kind of show, even though, I mean, it's not a perfect show. But when you have those, the, the big overarching story where things are paying off three seasons later, uh, and and just uh, some very interesting uh, character shifts throughout that show. Uh, one of the things that really got me uh, to enjoy kind of long form uh, or show me that long form TV is possible and really enjoyable. Definitely. Well, that's why people buy big books or series books or trilogies. They want. Excuse me. I have to remove a cat from my keyboard. So we're not <laughs> there we go. Excise the cat. Um, uh, if you if you find something you really like, you want more of it. That's why Conan Doyle finally had to bring back Sherlock Holmes. He just <laughs> to his it. chagrin, <laughs> to his chagrin, yes, uh, and not the best thing he ever wrote. But uh, you know, people want more of a good thing, whether it's vanilla ice cream or movies or TV that they happen to like. And uh, now we can do it. Now we can do it. I, I had an app come out last week actually, with a formal release of something called The Moaning Words. I've never had a chance to write a long Lovecraft story. I love Lovecraft. You probably already figured that out. And this company from France, Biuk, approached me to write the story for an app, an interactive app for phones and tablets and computers. And it was a very interesting way to approach a story. But I got to write 18 chapters wow. instead of a short story or, you know, even a novella. And it, it was great. It was a chance, you know, it's not a film, but it, there's a lot of graphics and a lot of action. And it, it was a different approach to writing something like that. But uh, it was finally a chance to do something long form with Lovecraft. Uh, it sounds really fascinating. What's the name of the app? The Moaning Words. Moaning Words, okay. And, and is that uh, on uh, the uh, Apple App Store or uh, Android? Okay. Both. No. Oh, cool. And it's free. The oh, basic cool. app is free. So, you, know, you can't beat that. I will definitely have to check that out. Um, www.themoaningwords, uh, or just go to the App Store. 
this is something that's just kind of a personal uh, passion of mine. Uh, I've always been interested in kind of the future of uh, e-literature, and that and that kind of goes into uh, the idea of an of a app that tells a story that is a form of literature in a certain sense is is very fascinating to me. I'm I'm kind of disappointed so far with uh, what I've seen from ebooks in terms of just trying to replicate a a paper book experience. I mean, obviously that's what sells. I mean, from a commercial perspective, it makes a lot of sense. And I have a Kindle and I really like it. I, I mean, it does a good job, relatively good job of replicating the feel of uh, of paper or an experience of reading a book. But uh, and as someone who writes science fiction. Uh, considers himself uh, to a futurist to a certain degree. Um, what do you see as, as the future of literature and electronic medium? Is there any kind? I mean, it's, uh, let me just give you the most open-ended question possible. But uh, it's something that fascinates me. I really enjoy thinking about how it goes. Well, uh, the technology, you know, seems to be outpacing our ability to invent it. But eventually, I think what you'll see is there, there's no substitute for a good story, regardless of medium, whether it's movies or television or print. Uh, a good story is still a good story. What you can vary is the method of telling it. And I think eventually you'll see something where you put a little electronic device like a snood over your head and it will directly <laughs> interface with your brain and you will go there and you will live the story. You'll still have words, maybe not on paper, maybe on paper, I don't know. You'll still have words you can read, but eventually you're going to have this merging of uh, visual storytelling as well as, as prose, and you'll simply go there and close your eyes and you'll enter the scene. In other words, instead of viewing Jurassic Park or reading Jurassic Park, you'll be in Jurassic Park. And how these things will be directed and created, I don't know. But you'll be there, and let's just using that as an example, you'll be there with the kids and Dr. Grant, and you'll experience the whole thing. The difference is you won't know what's going to happen. And something may happen from behind you. Something may happen over you. Obviously, this will, this will affect all of your senses, not just uh, hearing and sight, but smell and probably touch as well. It'll be the ultimate expression of virtual reality, and there will be both private versions where you can do this as I just described for yourself. And there will also be uh, group versions where you can interact and experience it with other people. Just like today's games, you'll go into Jurassic Park and maybe your friend Jeff will be over there and he'll experience it differently from you will. But somebody still has to design the story. Like with the moaning words, there are all kinds of different directions the plot can take depending on choices that the person using the app makes. There's a very involved card game. Uh, you can actually write your own pieces. In other words, you can put yourself into the story. Uh, that's what this French company does, and this is they've done this with other... Uh, this is not their first project. This is not a startup. They've done this with other uh, projects as well. The idea is to get the reader, in this case, as much into the story themselves and involved with deciding what direction the story goes as possible. It's a very interesting way to approach the writing, obviously. Yeah, it definitely, I mean, it, it does actually remind me of, uh, from what I've seen of uh, in video game story design in terms of, uh, you know, having multiple elements, multiple, uh, kind of a moving target, as it were, uh, depending on where the, the protagonist is in the story and, and how it, that kind of comes together. That sounds really fascinating. Uh, do you, 
have any concern that uh, in that kind of uh, virtual literature, for lack of a better term, or, or virtual experiences like that, that uh, we'll see the decline of perhaps the single creator, the you know the 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 lone artiste, as it were, to uh, that's the sole uh, responsible party of. I mean, obviously, you know, you need a publisher to publish the book, you need printers to print the book. But as an author, as someone who, you know, you're the main creative force, do you do you see in, in that kind of future uh, a much more collaborative uh, a future for uh, literature? Or uh, is there room, I guess, for the, the lone author in that kind of future? Well, I think so. I think you'll see both. I think people today are happy with both. When you watch a television show, uh, you're seeing a large collaborative effort. Uh, even if it's a half-hour situation comedy, there's usually at least half a dozen people sitting around in a room doing the story. So it's not a single person. You'll also have room for the single creator. I don't think there's any question about that. Many years ago, there was a company called Magic Incorporated in San Francisco. And I wrote, uh, this was before the advent of uh, high-speed internet, so it didn't work from a technical standpoint, but we tried. Uh, and I did a series, uh, I did a game for them called the Marex, which involved five concentric worlds that you could enter from one point could enter to another point, depending on how they rotated. And we did a live demonstration at the San Francisco Exploratorium with then state-of-the-art Sony computers where we had actors on stage and people calling in plots, suggestions, and directions, which I would then on-site write up for the actors to speak. Mm. Um, so it was instant. It was instantly interactive, and the software and the internet simply couldn't handle it at that time. The speeds were insufficient. The clarity was insufficient. But I think that points the way to the future of you know a single author directing, if you will, the storyline. Uh, that's you know real time storytelling, like somebody sitting around. It's the technological equivalent of sitting around the fire and talking for your dinner. Telling story for your dinner. I think you'll be able to do that from a technical standpoint. One of these days, for example, people may able to go, may be able to put on those little snood-like devices I talked about. Go to an author's website. The author will plug himself in, or the creator, or whatever you want to use for definition, and say tonight's chapter, and will actually start composing it on the spot. Now that won't work for writers like Joseph Heller, who took ten years between books, but for somebody who is kind of quick on the draw, that would be a lot of fun. You'd be more like a travel guide than a writer in one sense. Uh, I think that was one of the ideas behind, uh, if you remember, Google, the Google Wave project, which was supposed to be like a real-time collaborative. I mean, they were thinking of it more for business, but I know a couple of authors had experimented with doing like a subscription service where fans could check out their collaborative process and kind of give feedback and input as they're uh, composing this this larger work. So... I, yeah, I, I could I could definitely see that uh, not too far uh, in the future, and I, I definitely there would definitely be an audience for it. Certainly, I mean, uh, you know, uh, with the internet now, uh, everyone's famous to fifteen people, isn't that the expression now? So, uh, d definitely an interesting future. Uh, I won't take up too much more of your time, but uh, I just had two more questions. Do you have a uh, have you read any uh, movie novelizations? And if you have, or do you have some favorite authors that you would uh, recommend? Besides yourself, of course. No, I don't have time to read much fiction at all, actually, because my eyes for the last 30 years have been very bad for reading. 
So I have to ration my reading to things like research, keeping up with current events, keeping up with current science, uh, and nonfiction. I'm reading Jan Stafford's biography of Beethoven, which just came out, for example. That's not to say I won't get any ideas from it, but uh, as far as recommending particular novelizations, I'm afraid I can't do that. Well, I would definitely say Alan Dean Foster would be on the top of my list. Uh, and then the last question I have for you is uh, on our show, we have a segment called The Rewrite Delight, where uh, after we've read the novelization, we say you can choose any author, uh, past or present, uh, that you would choose to maybe rewrite the story, just to have an interesting perspective on that. For example, for Clash of the Titans, uh, my guest uh, had suggested C.S. Lewis. Uh, he would want to read the C.S. Lewis version of Clash of the Titans. And I said I'd want to read the Margaret Weiss, Tracy Hickman version of it, just so I could have like a three-story trilogy of it. Um, for uh, is, there, is there any author, uh, living or past, uh, that you would want to uh, maybe see do an adaptation of a film like Star Wars or, or one of the Star Trek films? Anything, anything along those lines? Uh, that's a nice question. I'd love to see what Charles Dickens could do with Star Wars. Ooh, ooh, man, that'd be, oh, the, the moralizing would just hit you over the head. It would be glorious. Well, he'd string you out, too. Yes, you know? yes. Plenty of suspense, plenty of suspense. Oh, uh, that, that would be a treat. It's a hard science fiction film. I'll say something, I'm trying to think of something that's not based on a Philip K. Dick novel. <laughs> uh, oh, golly. Um, come on, give me some examples. We need a hard science fiction ooh, film. Ooh, um... Alien would be, uh, that's not necessarily hard sci-fi. Um, like Alan Poe, but that seems like, you know, it's overdoing the same. A little thing. on the nose, yeah. <laughs> not too much so, but uh, something a little less in the horror genre, maybe something um, something like Silent Running. Okay. Not Silent Running. Uh, oh, come on, Alan. Oh, gosh. Well, let's let's give Alexander Dumas a crack at Metropolis. You have sold me, sir. I'm I'm tempted to build a time machine just to make to see that happen. I would actually like to see him just his interpretation of the visuals would be tremendous. Uh, excellent, an excellent, excellent rewrite delight. Well, uh, Alan, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to sit with me. I really appreciate it. This has been a treat. And, sure. uh, and uh, thank you again. And uh, uh, check out uh, what was the name of the app again? I God, I got to write that down real quick. The Moaning Words. The Moaning Words. All right. I am writing it down right now. Check it out, everybody. And yeah, there's a nice, uh, a nice little YouTube video that the company did uh, uh, explaining it and promoting it as well, which you'll get if you go to the website anyway. There'll be a click there, and you can click on the video and uh, check that out. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you once again, and uh, hope everybody uh, enjoyed the interview. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Have a good evening. You too.